Welcome to Direction Correct, a Beatlings podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. It was good seeing you the other day. Yeah. I was hoping we could talk about that on here. I don't really think I have anything I want to say. <laughs> it, just, it is good to meet in person sometimes, you know? No, it was, it was a bigger group than I anticipated. I thought it was just going to be like you, me, and like a couple other folks and... uh that was the plan, and then people started inviting their friends, and then that just kind of blew up. <laughs> it was like 10, 12 people. I mean, it was pretty good. Yeah, something like that. I think everybody, this is going to sound conceited, but I think people thought we were like the it place to be, and so like, they like wanted an invite because they felt like they were missing out if they weren't there, but I was like, you're not missing out. <laughs> or, we're going to the bar. Yeah, it's just us hanging out at a shitty sports bar. I really wasn't prepared for, you know, what it was. I, I should have known better. It's like going to like a like post psyop party or something like that and like everything like quickly devolves into like sort of work talk. And like after being on, you know, meetings all day, it's like, oh, it's wanna like shoot the shit. And it's like, Well, I'm a uh engagement specialist with a, an eye on developing the talent pipeline. I was like, Oh god. I don't, I'm not, I wasn't prepared for this. It's like, it's like, this is work. Yeah. This is, which is what you do at these sort of events, right? I think this is one of the things that my, the difference between your and my roles, like at work, I get a lot more of this shit than you do. <laughs> oh, for sure. So like I was fully expecting what happened, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's something that you encounter every day. Well, I mean, once again, it is like going to a uh, work function. And so that's what people naturally talk about. I thought it was just going to be like us hanging out and like shooting the shit, talking about golf or whatever we're going to do. Well, and that's the thing I find is like the more like senior and in like people who feel comfortable in their career, the more networking events actually turn into building personal relationships. The more junior or like, for a person who feels like that they haven't like made it yet the more it's like hi i need to like be a walking resume and talk to you about everything that we're working on like that that to me is hard to overcome that for sure honestly that's that's the least valuable stuff like you really want to know if you can work with somebody and just because they can do things a lot of people can do things but you want to know am i gonna be able to get along with that person yeah yeah i mean in a way I don't know. Tell me what you think about this. In a way, I feel like that should be a part of like every job interview. It's just like, hey, can you hang out? Like, can you be cool? <laughs> <laughs> and don't they just call that PO fit? You know, or but it should be like me, you fit or like LMX. Do we have this? Yeah. Like, I mean, can we converse as human beings and as adults? And it, or, or is it weird? You know? And if it if it's weird, then yeah, we might have problems down the road. If it's not, you know, maybe this could be a, an amazing relationship. 
Well, uh, I got a glimpse at uh, my old company, one of the old companies I worked at, of the uh, rating scale used to rate me and the other candidates. Not necessarily a good thing, but like one of them was communication style. That was one of the dimensions that they were assessing, which I think that that's essentially code for, I can understand you, we can convey ideas easily. Yeah. It's like, how do you even rate that communication style? I don't know. One to five. Me like yeah, me like five. to me no like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's really what it is. Like I, they could try to dress it up and make it more scientific, but that's really what it comes down to. Um, by the way, just to decrease the pressure on us, since this is our first time doing a live one, <laughs> there's literally zero people watching, so <laughs> you you don't have to worry. Good, good. and wh- why would they? Like they're gonna log on it. And- pre noon and like be like ah, I gotta get some hot directly correct talking. <laughs> well, and the fact that we didn't promote it and it's on a platform that uh, only fourteen year olds are on, you know. I'm on it, sort of. Not really. I don't log on that often. What do you do on Twitch, by the way? Just out of curiosity. Uh, not a lot, really. There are some like some modest talk shows that are somewhat entertaining a lot of people playing video games yeah that's why i say it's like 14 year olds playing video games is kind of what i thought it was yeah i i i don't it's like red dead redemption or something like that i watched some guy just like i don't know it's, it's like watching someone else have fun essentially seeing somebody else living their best life <laughs> right yeah uh speaking of that like uh we who we were talking to uh, uh we, were t- we had this conversation John Eisenstark the other day equal pay, you know, is like, should everyone be paid the same for the same role? Right. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about like the, like global roles versus local rates, like people getting paid more and high cost of living cities for the same role. Yeah. Low cost of living city or like somewhere international. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but someone brought up a point that we were talking sort of tangentially about different things. I thought this was really interesting. So people in, say, uh, Europe, they get a lot more vacation time than the people mm-hmm. in the U.S. Should you get equal vacation time as well? You may have sent me this, but I saw a meme the other day where it was like an American and like a European, like going back and forth at one another. And like the Americans like saying, Oh yeah, I'm working so hard and I'm about to get promoted and all this kind of stuff. And the European replies, sorry, I'm out on vacation for three months. I'll, be, I'll respond <laughs> when I get back. <laughs> and it's like, Oh yeah, this is very different. Well, that, that was the impetus of the conversation. Essentially this person works in a global environment and they essentially said that these people take, two, four, six, eight weeks off at a time. And that work cascades onto other people. So they have to pick up the slack and they can't, it's, it's not socially acceptable, not, you know, whatever to take this sort of lengthy break. I think, and this is maybe our American bias coming out here, Scott, because from my perspective, I think the work just doesn't get done. <laughs> like in America, you know, you would, it, you're putting <laughs> a burden like, yeah. on someone else there they're just like yeah it's uh it's just not happening for three months sorry well we'll get to it when we get to it yeah i think that's just a very much a cultural difference yeah i mean it's it's wild though to think that like we do have these sort of like i mean i feel like you're baiting me you're baiting me to talk about everyone gets paid the same (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you can talk about it if you want to. Well, because like in the in the theory, it's talking about exactly what you described, which is some jobs are higher stress, some jobs are lower stress, some jobs require more hours, some jobs require less hours. And so it would actually make sense that if two people were doing the same job, but one was in the US and one was in Europe, the person in Europe might get paid less, but it's just because the factors of the job actually make it less, you know, like value is not the right word, but like it, I, I called it, uh, what would the phrase I used in there? It has less heartache or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrase I used. <laughs> um, and because it has less heartache, it actually gets paid less. But if you look, if you added up all like the units of heartache, together um you would get to a global like standard pay rate therefore everyone gets paid the same so what what if uh pay were like monetary pay were equalized across groups then but one group gets more vacation it's obviously unfair right it, it, it absolutely would be unfair and you would be able to show that using the theoretical framework that i put out there and the other thing is too is um and i i can't remember i, I put something in there it's like if you see deltas in the pay rates, well, what you would expect is those will normalize over time. So you might find a gap between the two, but they'll actually decrease. And the example I used in the article was about like nurses and school teachers during the pandemic, they had to start paying them more. And it's because the job qualitatively changed and it got much, much more difficult. And therefore just turnover rates in those roles just went crazy until they started raising the pay to correspond with the additional heartache that those roles had to subsume because of the challenges of the pandemic. I, I would love a uh, CEO to make this same argument because, like, you know, CEOs get like thrown under the bus all the time. Like, oh, you get paid a thousand times more than the lowest paid employer, this sort of thing. But it's like, see, using Cole Napper's framework, we're actually <laughs> paid exactly the same. Well, and you see, but you, 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 you left out a key part, which is, this is the exception to the theory, which is it says anyone who is paid in equity, which is largely what CEOs are paying in or ownership is not the, the theory does not apply to them. Like that, that is a completely different standard of thought because there obviously there's exceptions to every theory. And I wanted to make sure, I don't know why I'm debating this right now. You know, um, you're, you're debating me like I care yeah like i really don't <laughs> care <laughs> but you, you're you are right in that way that like once you like switch over to uh stocks or whatever like the scale changes completely it, it's a different animal it's non-linear yeah like you can um if you get a 10 percent raise you only get 10 percent more money but you know if your stock goes up 10% and you get paid on variable equity rates, that could be like a 120% increase for you. So it's, again, it's a non-linear increase. Oh God, you're giving me tired head. Sorry. <laughs> I had to dig into this a lot in some of my prior roles. And so I've, I feel like I'm like informed, but not educated, if that makes sense. Have, do you ever feel that way sometimes? Like, you know, a lot about something, but you actually don't know anything. Oh, like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, it's not exactly a Dunning Kruger. Right, let me let me make sure I'm more clear on this because I I I I think Dunning Kruger is hilarious. Um, but I, I, it's like where you learn a lot about a topic through experience, but you have no formal education on the topic. Oh, that okay, that, that that's a different sort of animal. Like, so I've learned a ton about things like executive compensation through experience, and I have l literally zero formal education, and I I'm probably doing everything wrong, and everything I know is wrong. But 
I don't know where it's wrong. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is my orientation. Once again, like a divide between us, like that's my orientation to R. Like everything I learned is just kind of piecemeal, stack overflow, just try to figure it out as you go. And then like two years later, you're like, oh, I've been doing this the most inefficient way possible. Here's a way to do it much easier. Well, I think there's beauty in both, though. Like, I feel like I think I went on a riff this a while ago about like people who are self-taught. I tend to find them very interesting and intriguing because they they have they have to bring like a unique perspective to things. Whereas somebody who's classically taught, yeah. sometimes they probably know things like they're not going to make that two year mistake that you made, but they obviously they're going to have the basics down pat. And they're not going to make, they're not going to stub their toe very often on things because they have the basics. Well, there's also a motivation component, right? Like, so the person that is self-taught has to go out, find things themselves, explore their environment, whatever that means, find the tidbits and nuggets that they can actually probably put to use. That's probably why someone would do that. On the other hand, if you're like in a classroom academic setting, you're essentially being indoctrinated into a way of thinking which limits <laughs> all the possibilities, right? It's like that, that, that becomes the paradigm through which you view the topic. When it's like for better or worse, right? Like there's really good things about that indoctrination. Oh, there's yeah. also things that um, detract from your ability to really know something by being indoctrinated. And I think that's why um, like I, I feel very torn about having a PhD sometimes, right? Because I'm, I'm very much, um, I appreciate everything I learned through the PhD. I, I, I enjoy having the credential on occasion, but I feel like a lot of stuff I learned outside of the PhD, but it like has the weight of the PhD behind it, and that's what gives it credence. Um, but it's not necessarily because I have the PhD that I learned some of that stuff. Does that make any sense at all? Oh, it does. It does. Uh, a, a PhD is essentially a selfish process where you hide away for, you know, five, six years, whatever it's going to be, and go get these letters behind your name. Uh, and I had the same sort of phenomena. As soon as I graduated, I, you know, I, I put it on LinkedIn and people came out of the woodwork to connect with me, like in, in ways that they did not beforehand. I mean, I, I had to start telling my mom that I'm Dr. Hines. You know, she, called me, <laughs> she, was, she was calling me son. Or, you know, Scott. I was like, no, that's not what it is anymore, Mom. <laughs> I can't, of course. <laughs> it just makes me sad at a certain level. I'm like, come on, it's your mom, man. Uh, no, no, but I, I know what you mean. And it's a lot of jobs like require that as a, uh, it's a job requirement. You, you need a PhD in this sort of thing where there's people that are exceptionally capable but did not take those, you know, four or five, seven years, whatever it takes to get the PhD, but have a well, wealth make, of experience. Let me make it a little bit more um, simple and, and practical. I get this question often. I want to get your perspective on it. It's like somebody asked me, you know, I have an undergraduate degree or I have a master's degree already. Do I need to go back and get a PhD to be successful at people analytics? What, how do you respond to that? Uh, that's what I did. I, I, my, my in of one would say, uh, do, do I have to No, but I will say that there is 
things that you cannot be taught in a master's level program that you are taught in the PhD program, just because there's not enough time, there's not enough attention, there's not enough devoted sort of energy to get to those sort of things in the sort of depth that you need. Uh, of course, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to go out and be a, um, you know, a people leader, like lead a function, don't necessarily need in-depth research knowledge, uh, or at least, you know, hardcore statistical knowledge. But if you do want to go deep into sort of like an analyst role or, you know, get heavy into statistics, you should probably get some formal education because that's going to be hard to wade through all the minutiae. Yeah, I, I tell people, <laughs> if you're a sadist, you'll love a PhD for <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I uh, got a master's degree and worked in uh, uh various different roles in people analytics for four years thereafter. Um, I thought that I knew my shit until I started taking some more advanced like stats courses or more advanced IO courses. Like it just opened my world up completely, which I would have never gotten that sort of exposure otherwise, you know, uh, theory building that that's, that's, that's one of the things that you really don't get on your own because, because you don't know where that information lies. That's one of the main, benefits to a phd not necessarily that you know it but you know where to find it and who to ask yeah i, I think that makes a lot of sense you you're very practical in and how you respond to that. I, <laughs> I i never have a good response what should you get a phd or not one of the things i tried to avoid is like the silly jokes that we always say like it depends <laughs> well it does it really does depend in this case and and it's like do you want the, the way I would put it is like, do you want to have a really strong research foundation to what you're doing? Because if you do, a PhD is probably right for you. If you want to strictly be an applied person who goes in, is a practitioner, maybe like a program manager or something along those lines, you do not need a PhD to do mm -hmm. that. And it, so it really depends on like what your career ambitions are, where you find joy and, and those type of things. And, and if really, if you just crave learning, Right. If you're one of those people that really just is intrinsically motivated to learn, a PhD can be great for that. I, I think that what you just said there about finding joy is uh, paramount. This is, what, this is what I tell like every new student that's coming in. I, I say, focus on what you are good at, what you enjoy. If you don't enjoy sitting there running statistical analyses all day, don't go that route. If you want to be a consultant and like talk to people all day and you enjoy that, you're kind of extroverted, it doesn't wear you down, go that route. But you're going to have a world of pain if you're going to have to sit like in a back room, just like kind of like pounding away on a keyboard all day. It's going to be bad, bad news. Do you mind if I like diagnose this, how I'm feeling in real time on this? I think um, you should, Dr. Knapper. This has nothing to do with what you were just saying. This is about being live. <laughs> you know what I'm realizing is I don't feel like we're talking to each other. And I don't know if you feel it. I feel like I'm talking to an audience right now. And I, I hardly ever feel that way on this podcast. But the second that live button went on, I feel that way. And I, I, I don't know. I, gotta, I, I think I'm going to have to uncoach myself out of that. Well, um, I, I don't feel that way, but I do. Okay, that's I, good. I do notice that you change a little bit, and maybe I do too, when we hit record. Just slightly. It's, it's, I think it's almost impossible not to. Yeah, because now, now you're on record, right? Yeah, well, not just that. It's like, I mean, it's like being insecure, right? Like you want to sound good. Existential <laughs> crisis about to brew up here.
No, it's like you just want to like I don't want to be an idiot. <laughs> I know we are idiots, but like I want to be I don't want to be like a full idiot. I want to be like a half idiot. Well, uh, it's just pessimism versus optimism. Your, your idiot glass is half full. I love that. Yeah. Uh, you want to do a little grab bag? Let's do some grab bag. Let's get me out of this funk. Yeah, get you out of the funk. Uh, just some things to react to. These are five different uh, TikToks that I found enjoyable. I don't think we're going to play them, but I'll just describe them to you. But um, where to begin? So this one that had Jerry Seinfeld, and he said, the blessing in life is finding the torture that you're comfortable with. So once again, like finding your joy. And that could be your kids, your marriage, your work, whatever it is. Like you actually become self-actualized when you just essentially find whatever it is that you're like, okay, I can handle this sort of bad stuff in my life. Yeah. I I actually get behind, like, this is something I don't think I've like put into words before, but it's like, this is going to sound really cheesy. I don't care. Like when you're falling in love with someone, I find that it's the thing, like the little things about them that like irk you in the beginning that are actually the things that kind of make you stick in the long term. Cause it's like, it's what makes you unique and a human. And it's like, cool. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so I, I think it would be the opposite way. It's like in the beginning, those little things are like, they're cute, but over time you're like, Oh God, like you always do X. You always put your glass on the table you never pick it up but i think you'd miss it yeah i think that's kind of what i'm saying is like over a long period of time the fact that you it's like oh that's good old scott again puts his glass <laughs> on the table in the wrong way and you just learn to love it you know i don't know do you have any fights with the wife like what would any idiosyncrasies that either you do or she does that like y'all get on each other about i mean we're working on me pretty often <laughs> uh what's 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 on your uh docket that you need to take care of i don't know this is gonna sound silly but um i'm like oversharing today for some reason (laughs) in my office you can actually see it right here i use old i use old uh kleenex boxes as trash as a trash can i don't have a trash can in here and she was trying to convince me to put a real trash can. And it was really frustrating. me. <laughs> and I was like, I like my Kleenex boxes. And of course, like this is this is typical coal being coal, just being hard headed over something that doesn't matter at all. No, I'm, I'm with you on that, though. That takes up space. Like you got your Kleenex box, what you do, right? See, I feel like I'm going to start defending my Kleenex box like I was defending everyone gets paid the same. Uh Every, every so often, uh, someone will just like make an executive decision for me and it's probably for the best. Like, uh, so I never had a trash can in the bathroom until a girl essentially bought me one, you know, this sort of thing. Or when I was at Allstate, I had a styrofoam cup from, uh, Burger House in Highland Park. And this thing was probably a year and a half old by the time the cleaning crew probably threw it away and it had like shit all over it. I used it every day, grab water and it had like, you know, nasty stuff on the inside, but I didn't care. And eventually just someone just threw it away. Yeah, this is, I, I, I jive with that notion a lot. I, when I used to live by myself, <laughs> I, um, oh. I would use one plate and one fork and one glass and I'd just rinse them 
for like just, weeks at a time. It's just practical, man. I, well, I never had any dishes and that kind of stuff just drove my knife, my wife nuts when we first started like, you know, oh, living yeah. together. <laughs> I mean, guys, bachelors, I mean, they, they can accept a lot. I'm talking about like eating food with a toothpick on a napkin. Like that, that's, that's your serving tray right there. I mean, let's just, let's just say it. We're, we're using our hands, you know? <laughs> well, uh, it's, uh, uh, Christakis and Fowler in their book connected that they, they talk about marriage benefits, the, the life expectancy of both men and women go up when they get married. Right. We, we've heard this before, but it's for different reasons. When a man gets married, the wife essentially forces him into a lifestyle that, you know, you stop riding motorcycles, <laughs> you know, you start eating healthy meals. You give up a lot of these sort of like bad behaviors that increase your longevity. Women essentially get financial stability, right? They, they get extra money, extra income, this sort of thing. And that raises their uh, life expectancy as well. But when a your spouse dies, uh, say a uh, husband loses his wife, becomes a widower, all those benefits go away immediately. And the husband will die shortly thereafter. For a wife, if they lose their husband, all those benefits are still there. All that financial security is still there and they can prosper a little bit while longer. It's really fascinating to read. I can't remember what Yeah, that's like that is very fascinating. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that before either. There's also um, like a, a social element as well. Like as soon as the wife dies, women tend to be the uh, social enablers or you know the social mm -hmm. hubs. So all of a sudden men do not have a support system around them. And, you know, go back to that eating food off napkins and using one plate that's dirty and all this sort of crap. Whereas women, they will have like a social support network around them. Yeah. And when you're doing that in the moment, it doesn't seem depressing. It seems depressing after the fact, though. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can rationalize it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Minim minimizing my, you know, impact on the environment by just using the same napkin over and over again. Why people want to get rid of my tissue box trash can. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See, you made the point for me. There you go. Let's uh let's uh get your wife in here. Get uh the co defending <laughs> argument. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? Uh <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting theory. So we've all been in these sort of like uh, company events, right? And they're like, you know, this year we're going to focus on, you know, building our talent pipeline. We're going to focus on the culture of the company. This lady says, create micro, micro goals that align with these stated strategies. And these become the indicators to evaluate employee performance. And then you could deliver on these goals that are aligned to your, you know, smaller subgroups uh, strategies. That's like interesting tactic. I don't know if I have anything to say about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Does that make sense? It makes sense. I just um, well, once yeah. again, like if you're doing this, you're probably you're you're obviously proactive, so yeah. you're probably already doing a lot of things right. But it's a way to align your performance more directly with uh, what the company needs. Which you know, I I mean, I think we kind of talked about this with Daniel recently, right? Um about the performance side of things. And I find that a lot of the performance based literature just doesn't make practical sense. How so? It's just like to align on so many things at such a granular level. I mean, you could be spend all day long every day, just aligning everything and then no work would ever actually get done. Right. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like, I guess the first goal is define performance. Yeah. You know, this at least gives some sort of uh, target to aim for. It's like, okay, here's what, here's what the company's stated goals. Let's uh, align to those. Well, it's not that, that that's kind of what triggered me to have that thought is I, I think that part makes complete sense. It's you ever done, have you ever been through like a goals cascading exercise? So you like, your goals at the cascade down to the next level and then the next level and then the next level and the next level to make sure that everything is properly aligned and you spend yeah. like six months doing that. It's brutal. And and so absolutely what we're doing should be aligned to, you know, the goals of the organization. It's just the the implementation of that is where a lot of heartache falls into. Uh, check this out. So it's a quote from Steve Jobs. He essentially said, uh, there at Apple, they hired a bunch of professional managers and the problem was they didn't know how to do anything. The best, <laughs> the, the, the best managers were uh, individual contributors who essentially said, no one's going to know how to do this better than me. I better become a manager because like, do you want to learn from someone that can't teach you anything? Oh yeah. We're, we're waiting into some stuff today. Cause, uh, I, I, there's like a yes and there, mm -hmm. which is the best managers absolutely abide by that. It's just many individual contributor managers that are subject matter experts can't make the transition to management. Yeah. Because the in theory, what should happen is you have one really strong performing person and now they manage five people and they create five more really strong performing people because they're able to kind of spread their knowledge around and their expertise. When in reality, oftentimes what happens is that person becomes like still a really strong performer and then five people have no clue what they're doing because they're getting no direction <laughs> and no management and 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 so it can be quite painful it's definitely a different skill set right like just because you can do something technical and know how to do it doesn't mean that you can now coach other people or especially in like a technical environment where you get like a different sort of personality set of folks that perhaps are not as social as you'd want them to be to be a leader yeah anything else on that i, I had something do you want me to grab bag it for a second yeah yeah grab bag it did you see this thing that do you know who polynode is yeah yeah based out of australia yeah they they did um they did this analysis of like the people analytics community using ona and I thought it was fascinating. Did you see this when it came out? No, I have not seen this. Uh, I, I talk to the uh, owner every so often. Yeah, me too. What I thought was really interesting, and it, it's still, it's kind of bugging me, honestly. Um, if you if you cut out like all the vendors and like the general HR influencers and you just focus on people analytics teams, like people who are doing this in, in organizations, mm -hmm. they, they put them some bubbles on here. Like you, you see like the meta team, the Google team, LinkedIn, Microsoft. And well, and I was surprised to see there wasn't an Amazon bubble, but that's kind of another story for another day. Um, but what I couldn't help but notice is, man, our field is incredibly concentrated in the Bay area, right? Like, if you, if you cut out all the influencers, I think over half of the people that do what we do are just in the Bay Area. And that, like, I think, you know, 10 years ago, that would have made a lot of sense. But I was like, oh my gosh, like, is really half of our field just at a few select companies? Like, is it, is it five companies in our, in our field that like, have like, over half of the 
intellectual horsepower of our field? I mean, maybe that's the case. I don't know. I mean, that, that could be like, first off, that's a beautiful ONA plot. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous, <laughs> right? You're I, admiring I, it. Oh, absolutely. I, I love a good plot. Um, but there, there, it does behoove companies to uh, settle in co-located areas so they can borrow talent from one another. Uh, whether that's just a natural happenstance that IOs tend to go over to the Bay Area or not, I, I would have guessed it'd be like more like DC. Well, maybe that's like ten years ago, yeah. sort of like governmental work. But when I think, um, I don't want to get too much into their methodology, but they they chose a few like initial nodes of people to choose from and linked from those, and I think that kind of biased the results to a certain extent of like who were the initial folks that they chose. But um, yeah, it, it, I, I do understand where you're coming from there. Interesting. I, I'd, I'd love to look at that methodology a little bit more. Uh, two more quick ones here. We'll get through this. Uh, this is more like a visual one. It may not make sense, but this person's in New York City and it's 530 in the morning and they pan over to a building and she's like, this is a building where people rent and like it's just totally dark. And she's like, pans over to the right. This is a building where people own and like all the lights are on, you know, so probably people are up at 530 in the morning. It's like a weird sort of uh visual of like do renters I, not turn on their lights is that the point <laughs> well i guess i guess that could be an unintended consequence like trying to save a little money but i think the the uh the takeaway would be like these people are up and they're about to go to work these people are not hustling oh gosh i was like i completely was lo this was lost on me sorry I was like, they must have really different habits for turning on lights. It very well could be. It very well could yeah, be. yeah, I get it. So you're like, yeah, if you, well, I'll tell you this, and this is from personal experience, having a mortgage is a huge motivator. To, oh, you, yeah. You need to work hard. So I, I, I jive with that notion uh, a lot. Yeah. Are you an overhead light person? Like, do you like the big light on in the room? I mean, you've, you've been to my place before. I don't turn on lights. Um, I try to be by a window. Um, I, yeah. I have that literally I have a light on now, like backlighting for the podcast, but I, I don't think I've ever turned on the light in this room no, since no, I lived here. Nothing nor annoys me more than the light in the room. Especially like come, someone comes in and they're like, flip it on. Like, Oh, it's so dark in here. It's like, you just ruined my vampire vibe here. What the <laughs> yeah, fuck are you like doing? Can you get out of my office? Yeah. And like, well, I need lights on to see. It's like, it's like the on. audacity. Like if I come into your life, yeah. I'm, like, hey, I'm just going to start drinking your soda. You know, how about you don't turn on my light then? Oh man. I'm just going to go over to the thermostat and crank it way up. Like it needs yeah. to be 82 degrees in here. Like the same sort of orientation. Uh, check this out. I, I found this really fascinating. So this guy is talking about a former boss that he has. And what he would ask in meetings is, where did you find your blueberries? And the, the impetus of this is uh, usually at meetings, people ask, you know, what, what challenges are you facing? They got these like stand-ups like, oh, I can't get past this issue. I can't get past that. But if you're like in a hunter-gatherer society, you don't want to know like what you did wrong. You want to know how you found the good stuff. And this kind of teaches people what uh, good looks like, what good performance looks like, and helps everyone else kind of make that uh, make their way down that path. So it's like a really interesting orientation to uh, managing teams. Where did you find your blueberries? Yeah, I think I'm just so hyper literal. These are the kind of things that I just I'm like, what are we talking about? Like blueberries? Like, is this what we're doing now? 
Well, I think, of course, uh, it's like uh, <clears throat> if you need to gather some food, you go find some yeah. blueberries. Where did you find those blueberries? Of course, Cole would answer Costco. Did you see this a few years ago? There was this like kind of viral uh, article about giving up your Legos. Did you see that? No. And I really liked the message behind it, but I was still, I was so hung up on the, why are we calling this Legos? <laughs> like, Le um, Lego, my Lego? Yeah, it, it was about how... Um, when in hyperscaling organizations, new like people who are new, this kind of dovetails with the article that you covered last week about uh, newcomers to a team. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so like people that are already at the organization have all this like intellectual capital, but also just just like stuff that they do. Right. And when you're bringing in a whole bunch of new people, you have to have the ability to give up some of that work. So that they're like you can make a you know make additional strategic progress while they take over some of that work. And so there was a like it's a pretty good article. I'll link to it in the show notes. But I, I guess I, like I was just so literal. Like the blueberries and the Legos get me hung up on this kind of stuff. <laughs> you you are like a, a very literal person. Like you don't enjoy abstract that much. Right, you like, I can do amb ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity. I do not like. You, you do not correct. enjoy that. I, I live in it. I love it. Why we well, need you, Scott? You're here for that. I'm I'm here for that. Get me on that wall. Hey, you wanted to a little confusion matrix? Yes, yes. Let's do it. The confusion matrix. Okay, so I was recently uh, in Europe, walking around by myself, had no cell phone plan, so I had plenty of time to think. And I got to thinking about people coming back to the office and, you know, there's a hoopla about it. You know, some people are like, oh, why would I do that? And I started thinking like, what are some like random perks if money were no object mm -hmm. that companies could employ to get people back to the office, right? And I've, let's see, I got uh, 10 of them here and I have them uh, ordered from most practical to least practical. Oh, goodness. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it could it could go even more impractical, but we won't go there. Okay, so first one, and just react as you see fit, whatever. The ability to turn the lights off in the office. Once again, big lights, hate them. Just be able to like walk in and be like, uh, light off. That, that would be a huge motivator for me. <laughs> right? Like, but the, the thing is, it, it, kind of to our point earlier, like that would piss off like half the people, but half of the people would be like super happy that you had that ability. Or maybe just like zones. Like this is the dark zone. This is the light zone. If you want to be yeah. a big light person, go be a big light person. I, I swear to God, these like fluorescent lights are killing my vision. E either that or me like keeping my uh, R at the tiniest possible font size and staring at it all day. One of the other is probably the case, right? Yep. Or like women, they'd be able to, we, we learned about this, like uh, Jordan Harley is talking about the temperature in the office. Like, yeah, just be able to adjust the temperature. Oh yeah, you're going in the way back machine. I forgot about that. Uh, let's see, number two, uh, not having to pay to park. I know this isn't the case everywhere, but just free parking. And I'll be honest, I've never had to pay to park at work. Not, not even one time. Not even like stipend or like, did, did you ever work like in a downtown area? No, never have. Oh, well, that, there you go. That makes that. But it seems pretty basic. You don't want to have to go to the office. Oh, man. Here, a flashback. I uh, interviewed at Ticketmaster in Dallas to be a call center rep when I was like 16, right? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was like a cattle call. It's like me and like 80 people in there. And like 
they just treat you like total shit in there like telling you what's what and like this sort of thing and the bit was like there's a big parking lot outside and it costs like seven dollars a day to park and uh by the way you're getting like 550 an hour so essentially for the first hour and a half you work just to park there <laughs> for the day <laughs> right it's like this seems like the worst thing ever yeah that's horrible <laughs> uh okay number three uh focus pods or rooms just a room you can go into and just not deal with i guess your neighbors which kind of defeats the purpose of going to the office yeah what you're saying is you give a person a temporary office <laughs> it's like why don't you just give people offices how about that number four travel perks uh i ran into someone from southwest airlines and essentially she was traveling to dublin and she's like oh yeah i just got this uh yeah. uh website and just tells me when planes are free and they've got all these like joint things obviously this isn't practical we're getting to the less practical stuff clearly five free food lunch breakfast whatever it is just kind of food in the office that was like a hot thing in tech you know for a while there i think they pulled back on a lot of that some companies though I mean, it gets expensive. I get it, man. I went to the Google office in Austin and oh my God, these people live the dream. Like just walk into the cafeteria and there's like steaks and salmon and you just kind of pick up whatever you want, like gourmet meals. Like I get it. I get it. Uh, okay. Here you go. Uh, a theater room, just like a, you know, like a theater. Well, so like, this is my, um, my kind of riff on the whole thing. Uh, cause I, I would love a theater room. That sounds amazing. But it's like your perks are like things that like take you away from doing work. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, yeah, I would love to go watch a movie or a football game in the middle of the day at work, but am I working? That's why they're perks, right? It's like, hey, part of the job. Uh, yeah, it'd have to be like culturally acceptable too to like go in there, you know, yeah. throw, throw on a movie and this sort of thing. But uh, yeah, just like a nice place to, you know, do a little work or, you know, whatever you're going to do. Okay, check, okay, this goes along with uh, valet service. You just roll up and, like, get a valet. Like, that Dr. that I could get on board with. I would love to just walk up to the front door, throw my keys to someone, and walk in. That would be great. Hell yeah, right? It's like, bring it bring it back cleaned. Clean. Or whatever, whatever the cool people say when they drop off stuff at the valet. Don't fart in my car. Yeah. <laughs> okay. On-site daycare. That is, I mean, when you got kids, that, that can be huge. Yeah. Um, what well, big motivator. You just go down and see them if you want to in the middle of the day. <laughs> I was working at an oil and gas company a few years ago, and the they were going to build an on-site daycare, and then the price of oil got cut in half in like a week. <laughs> they nope. And there were like these, these they had like poured the foundation for this daycare, and then the daycare, I, like I drove by it like years later and the daycare was never built, <laughs> but there, the foundation was still laid. I was like, oh, guess that daycare is never happening. I dated a girl that went to uh, Marble Falls High School and they had a daycare on site at their high school, which not, not a good sign overall, but I mean, it makes sense. Ooh. Yeah. Like teenage pregnancy daycare. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. That's really. rough. Uh, what about like this on-site healthcare, like jointly, like, oh, he's got a doctor downstairs. You go see him. Yeah. Like I, I've seen some, I've worked at some places had, the, uh, it depends on the level of healthcare we talking about. 
like what I realized, like some of the places, like, oh yeah, we have on-site healthcare and it's like one of those little machines that you can see like the pharmacy where they take your blood pressure and that's it. <laughs> it's like, that's not on-site healthcare. That's, Let's be clear. That doesn't help me at all. Yeah. However, but I mean, yeah, yeah, if you had like the real, like the ability to, you know, go see uh, like a primary care physician yeah. or get like a shot or something like that, that would be huge. Just get like a prescription, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A pharmacy. Yeah. Oh, well, a pharmacy. That's, that's crazy. That's, that's the next, that's the next number, right? That's the next yeah. one up. I, I, I can't pass up one of the little like uh, blood pressure cuffs at the, uh, at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what the numbers mean. I was like, yeah, squeeze my arm. What's up? So this is going to tell you a little bit. I feel like I'm dying when I take those. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little thrill. It's a cheap yeah. thrill. Uh, okay. I recently talked to someone that uh, visited uh, London. And they went to their office there, and in the ground floor, there was a bar, just a pub, right at the office. And at four o'clock, four thirty, people wandered down there, grabbed a pint, and were just hanging out, talking. Sounds fun. Sounds like a place I would have loved to work at. <laughs> right, right. If you had that, you might want to come into the office a little more often. Uh, maybe get into a Donny Brook with a coworker. Who knows? What's a Donny Brook? It's just a fight, right? They would brawl. Oh, okay. Is that like a polite way of saying fight in you know the UK? So okay, here's the last one on the list: a <laughs> a uh, spa, pool, sauna, something like that. Just like a, a spa in the office, and uh, someone else added onto this. Like it would have to be limited, so that you couldn't have so many people in there at one time. Just like a few people, or maybe big enough that it would accommodate everyone. <laughs> this would, of course, necessitate senior coworkers and less than dressed. Uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm very, I have like a never take your clothes off at work rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, right. I was drinking there. He almost got me a spit all over the room. <laughs> we got spit takes on the podcast. Uh, oh, God. I mean, <laughs> oh, God. I violate that rule, though. I violate that rule. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. That just seems, yeah, that's weird. I'm oh, sorry. man. A few weeks ago, I was at this uh, event, and they gave me, like, I was, like, just helping out, like, running this sort of thing, and they gave me a T-shirt to wear, and I was like, cool. So I, I step aside, and, like, I had an undershirt on, and, like, I was trying to peel off my overshirt, and, like, it got stuck on my head like a fucking comedy show <laughs> like so like all my coworkers are there like watching me struggle my chest out like, See, like this is this is my point this is why you don't take yeah, your phone yeah, yeah. off at work it's like i guess i could have gone to the restroom and changed but <laughs> yeah, you know you why could. why would i yeah i, I think that well that'd be awesome just like kind of like a, a sauna though I, i've become a sauna guy on this uh, last trip, I figured out, man, that that'd See, be I like, like a, I like a good steam room. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the sauna. I do like a steam room. I, I think that I just want to live like a like Philadelphia mobster. It's like <laughs> it, it worked. Like you like go to the bar, like, you, you drink, and you like you talk to your friends. Like you talk about business, and then you go to the sauna, and you sit there and you talk about work, and then you go do stuff at night. You know, it's just. It's just like apparently that's my version of work. Yeah. <laughs> Idealized version of work. Yeah, it's like I think you glossed over some of the key components of that job. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So those are the things I came up with. That's a, and that's a good list. So companies out there, this is what you need to do. Clearly, get people back to the office. Well, I, I mean this this is sound. This isn't even really too much to ask. I feel like, but you know those companies that do like no meeting Wednesday or like yeah. no meeting Friday. Like those things, but rather than being one day a week, I would like no meeting 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. every day or something like, you know, like just have a block of your day schedule every day that could be focus time for everybody. I don't know. That that just seems like something that I would really thrive in that environment. Uh, that seems like totally practical. Cost the company nothing. We, we, we've covered Salesforce a couple different times on the pod who's like really going hard on no meetings or at least trying to limit them as much as possible i thought that was spotify no it was i think it's shopify shopify Shopify? oh i I got the company wrong yeah uh but at any rate uh okay salesforce gotta get on your game gotta (laughs) come up to uh shopify's level i mean it just meetings are such a drag if, if there's no outcome from the meeting then they can become just such a hassle no, that, that's called team building, Scott. There's no outcome, you know? Oh, I worked at a company that was like heavy meeting focus. So you're talking about pre-meeting to the pre-meeting to the pre-meeting to the meeting to the post-meeting to the post-meeting to the post-meeting. And the people just did whatever the fuck they want to do anyway. So it's like, what are we doing? We're just like wasting each other's life here. Yeah, that I, yeah, I think we've talked about this before. I, um, <laughs> it does feel like you're slowly dying in that type of environment well <laughs> no i well, maybe we will i don't know what do you want to talk about you can go to nerdery i was thinking nerdery but uh we could talk about um i know you were saying something about following up on our conversation with john about getting funding as a middle manager oh oh, oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I was intrigued by it we didn't get into it the other day but essentially you were saying that uh when you are a lower or middle manager, uh, you're fighting for resources, this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the interesting point that you made that we didn't get into was a lot of people, your peers, do not know that they're playing a game. They're just mm-hmm. bouncing around or doing whatever. And can you expand on that? Because like, I that's super fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, I always, again, I'm I'm like overly literal, overly practical here. I always try to think of like mathematically. So you get like, let's say you're a man, like you're a VP and you've got five middle managers reporting to you and each of them are asking for a million dollars of investment, right? So they're asking for $5 million. You VP know that you only have $3 million to give out, (laughs) right? And this is very typical or, or maybe even you have zero million dollars to give out, but you're having $5 million (laughs) being asked of you. And so you're having to kind of jockey this. But the thing is, each of those five middle managers that's asking usually doesn't know what the other four are asking for, right? And so they're in this competition that they don't even realize that they're in. And and so they're just like, look, $1 million, that's no big deal. I know you've got $1 million more million of budget. You said you have $3 million, right? So yeah. you should obviously be able to give me my $1 million, but they don't realize that they're that, – that that's not the full landscape of what's happening. And I'm presenting the most simple case 
it's usually way more complex than that. So what, what's what's the goal in that situation is like try and consolidate or like try to strategically align yourself with other folks to <clears throat> increase your odds or I, I guess it, it depends back to that discussion. I mean, finding stakeholders that, you know, are at, at a certain point, it gets to like, how can I make this? How How is this the most important thing to the business? Yeah. Right. And there's a many different ways of validating that. You can validate it with a use case or a business case. You can validate it with ROI. You can validate it with politics. You can validate it by aligning yourself to powerful leaders. You can do that in a variety of ways, but it, it's really about like, how can I prove that what I'm asking for is the most important thing to the company? This is Cole's world. Well, not anymore. Not anymore, but... Um, do you miss it? Do you miss it? That part... Um, some ways, yes. Some ways, no. Uh, you enjoy the game. You enjoy the, the game. In the ways, yes. Uh, it's because I'm pretty fucking good at making a business case. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like that's not one of the areas where I have, um, you know, a lack of skills. Uh, what I don't miss is, is like, the unknown unknowns of, you know, people sniping at you when you have no clue it's even happening. That's no fun. Uh, well, teach a man to fish. Like, uh, are there some basics to making a business case? Yeah. Find, uh, I mean, nobody really teaches you this in a PhD program either. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I could probably do a better, I should probably write an article about this, to be honest. But if, if I had to boil it down to like, it's very simplest components, find something that matters to the company, show the relationship between what you want to do and it fixing the problem for the company, and then have the loop, close the loop of showing after you did it that you proved that it worked, mm -hmm. right? And so most people get those like first few steps, but they leave out the last step of proving that it worked. Because when you do that, when you're able to prove that it worked, that's when people trust you, right? Otherwise, they're just like, hey, we gave you a million dollars. What do you have to show for it? And it's like, well, our we satisfaction scores were great. <laughs> and it's like, that's not what you promised us. You didn't promise us that your satisfaction scores were going to be great. You promised it was going to fix the problem. I'm still seeing the problem. Why am I still seeing, seeing this problem? And you burned through a million dollars. And you burned through a million dollars, yeah. Uh, well, you want to talk about fixing a problem? The murdery. Uh, or actually causing some downfall. So we're all familiar with chat GPT or, you know, gen AI in general. Uh, are you familiar with stack overflow? I am familiar with stack overflow. So it's, it's a place uh, that, you know, people can go and like look up answers to code and like has like a, uh, a good user community. Well, 50% of the stack overflow traffic is now gone. Look at this. Look at that. That's incredible. Cause it's just so, it's so easy. It's falling off a cliff. <laughs> Why, why would you go there, right? Well, I think, and this is almost unrelated to Stack Overflow, uh, but this whole concept of like giving versus taking, right? Whereas like Stack Overflow, there was a giving component and a taking component. The taking component is like when you're new, you could like learn how to do things really quickly because it's got, you know, kind of the playbook of how to do it, right? But the giving component is if you want to build a really strong reputation for yourself and maybe get hired from somewhere, you could be a contributor on Stack Overflow and people like recruiters are out there like looking for people to hire based on kind of like their um, reputations online. So there was like a giving versus taking. 
Well, the, the problem is when you implement something like ChatGPT, who's scraping Stack Overflow for all like the code whispers and stuff like that. Now the giving component, the the uh, the the incentive to want to give back has been diminished because because it's essentially been um, you know monopolized by this tool. And so now, why would I give back anymore when it's just going to get taken and given it everybody else? And so I, I think I think that's a lot a lot of the reasons why you see this downfall. Well, what is there to give back either? If ChatGPT just has all the answers, clearly it's not going to have everything forever because there's always going to be new developments and it won't be in part of their LLM, this sort of stuff. When have you looked into this at all? Because this is this actually gets to a bigger point, which is how generative is generative AI? Can it create code that has never existed? Can it solve ideas that have never been thought of before? Like I, I think that the 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 jury is still out on that because if if it truly is generative, like it will write new code that no one put into Stack Overflow, then yeah, maybe this is the end of something like Stack Overflow. But at a certain point, if it if it's not truly generative, you're going to need people. Like there's always going to be a room for innovators. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, I mean, like I ask it some pretty wild questions to kind of get example code and this sort of stuff and it will spit out things they don't often work like you need to do some finagling to get the general idea to work and it sometimes just gives you like bad stuff like it's like here your, your data we put it into a matrix and you're gonna you know run this analysis on this matrix and like when you actually go to run it it's like we don't accept matrices you know this sort of stuff which is kind of a simple example but It'll give you stuff, but it's not always good. Hmm. Yeah, like maybe. I mean, I suspect that if the exponential curve of the development of this tool keeps going up that curve, that it'll fix some of those problems. But I don't know if it's an S curve, you know, where it goes up exponentially and then it plateaus. Like that's that's the point where I'm at. I'm not sure which which of the two are we on. Well, that's, that's the singularity, right? Where like the code yeah. starts writing itself. And then I don't know what happens at that point. I think we all just become those like fat people in the chairs from Wally and we just yeah. hang out, hang out all day or something. We all become plumbers. Uh, the, the other sort of interesting <laughs> plumbers. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone needs plumbing up. Uh, the other interesting aspect of this little post is that uh, OpenAI shut down their AI detection tool. Essentially this decided that it's, you, you can't detect AI-generated content, so we're not going to even bother messing with that anymore. So, Yeah, I think Ethan Mullick, Ethan Mullick, who we've cited many times on this podcast, talks about that a lot because I think he's trying to give a lot of advice to educators. Like, yeah. There's this whole debate in the education sphere of like, should you be encouraging people to use the AI or should you? is it considered cheating to use AI? Right. And and so they're like, oh, if, if you're in the cheating camp, then you're like, well, we need good AI detectors like turnitin.com, but for AI. And he, I feel like there, once a week he posts something like AI detectors don't work. PSA. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, well, I guess we're past the Rubicon or whatever it's called. I, I think that the don't use AI camp is fundamentally misguided. It, it, if it becomes part of you, like your toolkit, and you're going to use it in the future, which I think we're all going to use it more and more. You, you got it's a skill. You got to know how to use it. Yeah, I remember using that same um, kind of argument with my parents when I was a, a teenager <laughs> because uh, they didn't want to give us cell phones. 
They're like, oh, we don't want you to have a cell phone. I was like, yeah, but in this new fangled economy, we're going to have to know how to use cell phones to be competitive, mom and dad. You need to get us a cell phone. Well, shit, when I was in you know, middle school or whatever, we couldn't use a calculator in our math class. In fact, they, they had them in this like thing on the door and like once a month, like the teacher would be like, okay, you've, you've done enough long division that you can use it for this one day. It's like, what the hell are we doing? Like, do we need to know that, do we need to like divide 177 by, you know, 22 to. And let's, let's get really, really real for a second. When's the last time you did long division? Probably that year, you yeah. know. And when's the last time you used a calculator? Uh, this morning. Exactly. Mike dropped. Yeah. Um, the, the, you do need to know the basics of what's going on. Just like you need to know the basics of what an ANOVA is doing. Just like you need to know the basics of what are bringing it back to like IO sort of learning. Yeah. You, need, you need to know what's actually going on in the analysis. But, you know, pounding it into kids that, to do these sort of tasks just doesn't make sense. I'm trying to, like, figure out if I'm, like, contradicting myself on this uh, uh, chat GPT thing. I'm not sure. No, you were saying, hey, we should be teaching kids to use chat GPT. And in the metaphor, chat GPT is a calculator. You, well, you need to be able to, like, structure a sentence and understand what's going on. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. You need to be able to critically reason what is going on, yeah. the arguments that are made, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, that's been my point since the very beginning. I mean, we probably talked about this a week after ChatGPT came out. It's like, okay, what this brings to a premium is critical thinking. Yeah, right? absolutely. Critical and analytical thinking will always matter. Now, here's the here's the rub. Those are actually really, really difficult to teach people, <laughs> right? And it requires a lot of things. And so we we kind of have um, what like a, a what do they call it the folly of rewarding for a and hoping for b yeah. situation where we teach people long division in hopes that it teaches them critical thinking but all it teaches them is long division <laughs> or or how to sneak a calculator into class yeah, yeah exactly um and so that that is really the rub as far as i'm concerned and uh I, i've been noodling on this idea i'm, I'm i kind of got an article in the works um about why history is important right because um you wouldn't think like uh, from an analytical person, like why, why would anybody, why would I recommend reading history to get better at people analytics? And mm -hmm. I think it's because analyzing complex situations teaches you things like critical thinking, right? And you can see that a lot by analyzing complex things that happened in the past. We're on a flat disc spinning, as they said in, what was that show based in Louisiana? Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson. You talking about, True Detective? True Detective, yeah. Where he's like, we're on a flat wow. disc. We're all just going around. I feel like that's a very obscure reference that both of us <laughs> happen to know. But uh, yes, if, if you analyze uh, what happened in the past, there's probably analogous thing that's going on now. Hubbard, like, I bring him up like every three episodes. I apologize for that. <laughs> I could set my watch by it. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, I, I just love it. I just love it. He has like a lot of great points. And uh, he essentially says that, you know, if you were faced with some sort of analytic challenge, the best thing to do is like go look in other fields and how they're handling it because they probably already did it. They probably already faced it and they probably did it better than you're going to do it anyway. So that's yeah. a, that's a, uh, uh, a note for exploring your environment and understanding other aspects of what's going on. Well, I think it actually goes back to the point about having a PhD earlier. 
you get into really, really deep, but narrow expertise. And that's why I kind of like the self-taught people, because again, essentially what you're doing is you're learning from other disciplines, mm -hmm. right? And you're bringing that in and you don't want to be just in this walled off garden of your little specific area of domain. Um, you want to know additional things. Uh, do you want to move on? Yeah. Do you want to do the um, table of deaths? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if we we're actually going to bring this up. Yeah, bring it up. This is a fascinating table. That's uh, what is it? It is uh, deaths per billion journeys, hours, and kilometers traveled. Like so, we got bus, rail, van, private car, on foot, all sorts of th stuff, all the way to space shuttle. And so if I'm reading this correctly, motorcycle is the deadliest kind of per capita. Um, it doesn't have the, the statistics for paragliding and skydiving. I imagine those aren't very good. And then walking on foot. There's no kilometers traveled for skydiving. I guess you go straight down, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could paragliding. I guess there's no distance, but it is hours. Yeah. Space shuttle, not not a safe place to be per journey, all right? You got 17 million, count my zeros there. Or is that 170,000? I think it's 170 million. I might be wrong. And this, this also reinforces that motorcycles are just fucking dangerous, man. Look at that. <laughs> well, walking on foot appear, appears to be pretty dangerous too. Uh, what is this? 54 deaths per billion kilometers walked? Yeah, I'm not sure I, I get it, but uh, it does seem like a lot of deaths. Man, when I was at uh, Louisiana Tech, I, I walked to school every day, and I'd see people just you know staring at their crotch in their car, essentially texting. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, God, they're going to kill me one day. I'm just going to walk across the street, and they're going to get me. Yeah, I'm the dangerous one because I listen to my headphones a lot when I walk, and it does make you not have as close a you know, paying attention to your surroundings as you probably should. That's that's super dangerous. Wear your headphones while you're walking. Yeah. Especially as much jaywalking as I do. I go early in the morning, so there's not that many people out. It's probably even more dangerous. And because it's so freaking hot. God, it's hot. Come to Seattle, brother. I did. I came. Did you enjoy it? I was super worried that it was going to fall into the ocean while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've told you this before, but I read this New Yorker article in like, I think like 2012, where it says like, Seattle, like there's this major fault line that says Seattle is going to fall into the ocean because it happened like 200 years ago and it happens every 200 years. And I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I have such bad luck. It's going to happen when I'm here. Yeah, I mean, supposedly a uh, pretty decent uh earthquake took place maybe like 15 years ago like knocked some bricks off buildings i've never experienced anything my building does come with earthquake insurance yeah if you're alive to get the check ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. just find me my little like concrete sandwich well not to mention you've got mount st helens and then mount rainier is apparently a volcano i mean it's like it's like a death trap you know have you heard about the super volcano in Yellowstone? Apparently, it's, I have. That thing's going to kill us all eventually. The the thing I wonder is, how do you know when a super volcano is about to erupt? Uh, I imagine there's going to be some uh, geological activity that they could register. 
Yeah, you would think it would like bubble up or something. Like something, there's got to be some indicators that, okay, this, you know, civilization ending event is likely to happen soon. Totes. Totes. Yeah. Anyway, um, you want to talk about the last nerdery topic? <laughs> well, indicators. Is that how can we apply this to people analytics, right? If we're looking for early indicators of yeah. all of our impending death or the, the economy being better. Exactly. Um, and, and so I saw this article from CNBC about six things to know about the job market right now. And uh, an economist says it's near perfect. Um, and so they go through a few of these. I'll just kind of hit on them. And they show data, which I like. So job growth is slowing and it shows the 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 change in jobs, which is a, a point I want to come back to in a minute, where it shows the biggest addition is healthcare, leisure, hospitality, and a little bit of construction. Mm-hmm. And for professional services is is the fourth most. Unemployment is up, but not for bad reasons. The US uh, labor force participation rate is up. The great resignation is over, which I know you and I talked about quite a few times. Uh, job openings rapidly approaching normal. Um, I don't know what normal is, but it says they're approaching normal. Wage growth is slowing, but outpaces cost of living. Job seekers need to be on their best game. I just would not have come up with the title of this article um, that said like near perfect. And because, and I think we talked about this with Jay Denton a while back, if a bunch of people in high paying jobs lose their jobs, like they get laid off, and then a bunch of jobs that are created, but they're all low paying, get added to the economy, mm-hmm. and the unemployment rate doesn't change. Is that a net good for society? Right. And in my opinion, yeah, it's probably good that people have jobs. I don't want everybody to be unemployed. But if you're just systematically removing high paying jobs and replacing them with low paying jobs, to me, that sounds like a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like a winning plan, does it? Yeah. Like for the all- overall stability of, everything really and that to me seems what's really happened um over over the last year or so is a lot of of just the upending of the economy for knowledge worker jobs like the Mm -hmm. professional services that i mentioned and a lot more additions of like hourly worker type jobs like leisure hospitality um you know hospital workers uh, like that those type of jobs and so it's like I mean, obviously, there's there's value of those jobs to society, and they're important. But if you're looking at a lot of the gains that were made over the last few years, they were made in high-paying professions, and it seems like a lot of those have been undone now. And I think we need to be prepared for this. Like going back to our discussion of Gen AI, like I think that we're gonna be a service economy until those jobs go away. But you're gonna see people transition to, you know, hospitality, healthcare, all these sort of things that. Yeah can't be replaced by AI immediately. No, we better get get good at saying like, hey man, I take your order. Yeah, there's like a entire robot McDonald's in your neck of the woods somewhere, right? Somewhere oh, in there? Dallas. Uh, yeah, but these, these sort of things like give me tired head. Like there's so many factors that go into the economy and like people that are no longer looking for a job, have no plans to be part of the workforce. Like they get in their own special category and they're no longer counted towards the thing. Yeah, like- that is like such a big asterisk for like the labor oh, force. Yeah. It's like, yeah, uh, unemployment rate is is really only people who are actively looking for jobs. And so if you're not actively looking for a job, you're not considered unemployed. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm yeah. sorry. It's like, they should call it deadbeats. 
right? Like <laughs> people that could work but will not work for whatever well, and reason. That's why they showed the labor force participation rate because that is what actually accounts for people mm. who are unemployed and not looking for jobs. And it does say that that's ticked up, but that's one of the main reasons why a lot of the slack, like the unemployment rate hasn't gone up is because they're not counting folks that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, aren't looking for work, but also too the, they're the like people that weren't in the labor force are now being put back into the labor force. And that's not showing up in the unemployment numbers. And the stuff gets like super political, super quick. And it, it's so hard to tease out. This is like where I think people have problem with like bending numbers, right? Yeah. I feel like you're lying I, to them. I kind of don't care about the politics of it. All I care about is like, especially like, let's talk about like people analytics folks. I've known so many folks that got laid off over the last year. Like right. so many. Unfortunately. And, and that didn't happen three years ago. That didn't happen five years ago. And I mean, I think we even had a whole episode like about a while back about like what's going on in people analytics. Cause like we had like four guests in a row that had all gotten like laid off. And, and so like, I I don't care about the politics of it, but if these macroeconomic circumstances are affecting our field, yeah, I'm going to be ticked off about it, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's not good. I'm perseverating also on this idea of, uh, you need to be what really good at your you can be on your game to get a job, right? It's still competitive yeah. landscape. I love how they buried that at the end of the article. It's yeah. like, yeah, you need to be on your game to get a job. Uh, is That means that the economy is near perfect. Because like, another way of putting that means is like, you you have to be, you know, like uh, there, was a, there was a famous economist, uh, Tyler Cowan, who wrote this book uh, a few years ago called Average is Over. Uh, meaning mm. like, you have to be world-class to get a job nowadays at anything. And so, and that, that may be great if you're world-class, but what about the average or the median individual? If they can't like have a decent career or they have to go become like an Uber driver or work at McDonald's, it's like, that's not good for society, right? No, no. I mean, like you're going to create a uh, have and have not sort of situation there, especially when we talk about like high paying jobs. Like yep. what we were talking about a while ago, you just yep. right, right there. Uh, I, I think that there's like also some basics that like will never go away as far as it's like be good at your job, work hard and treat people well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you can do those three things, like I guess we're kind of coming full circle back to, can you communicate well with your boss? Like <laughs> if, if, can you if, be cool in a job interview? Can you, you be cool? Oh my God. There's nothing worse than working with someone that's good, but an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, Oh God, I just want to get away from you. I'd rather work with someone that's really cool and easy to work with. Well, I think that's like, um, this is a false dichotomy, obviously, but it's like, you know, smart asshole versus, you know, person who can't do the job, but is nice. Like, which do you choose? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. As a smart asshole myself. As a smart inclined, asshole. To... You don't want someone that can like, that will destroy the team around you. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's the thing. You don't want people who leave bodies in their wake. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we've officially hit the end of all the stuff that we wanted to talk about. So, um, and we have one viewer, so that's cool. (laughs) Um, Thanks for hanging around, uh, lone viewer out there on Twitch. I hope your video games are treating you well. Thanks, mom. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, mom. Um, Any any final words, Scott? No, I think we're good. Cool. Well, you've been listening to Direction Correct, a People Linux podcast with Colin Scott and nobody.
As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott. 